You're going to love this. Just love it. What's not to love? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, Pennsylvania, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, Fine Affiliates in Parts Unknown, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com says me, if not you. Welcome to another thrilling, action-packed adventure. Glad to have you here. Uh, in uh, Back in 2010, uh, at bradblog.com, I had declared that marriage equality, the fight for marriage equality, was over. Yeah, it was going to continue for a long time, but uh, essentially, it was over. The good guys had won. Freedom had won. And you could see that very clearly if you looked at what was going on back in 2010, even though you knew there was long, you know, many court fights and so forth to come. Essentially, it was over. The good guys had won and the obstructionists were just going to keep kicking and screaming as long as they could. But eventually, the uh, the the arc of history had bent towards justice and it wasn't going to stop changing. Well, following the Pope's... Uh, uh, visit to the U.S. last week, uh, you know, I, I'm i feeling like the same is now true of the move to renewable energy and the fight against climate change. And I know that seems odd. That may seem a stretch. And it wasn't just the Pope coming here. But to me, it feels like, you know what, this thing is over. Fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuel supporters are going to kick and scream all they can. Of course, it's all over, as it were. But the shouting but we are moving. We are changing. This country, this world, this planet, we are changing. We've got no choice. We are going to. We're going to change to clean, renewable energy, and everything is going to be better because of it. The only question is, how long will it take and how much harm will be done until we get there? But, you know, y years ago, I wasn't sure. Oh, will, will solar ever work? Will wind ever work? Well, yeah, it's going to. It's going to work. We're going to move to electric cars and everything else is probably going to happen a lot faster than than most people think. But at this point, I am confident it is now going to happen. Let's see if it's in time. Whether we survive remains another question. But uh, but now we know. Now we know that Exxon, Exxon, one of the largest, not just the largest uh, fossil fuel companies in the world, but one of the largest companies in the world, most profitable company 
in the world. Now we know that Exxon knew. They knew about the dangers of climate change and global warming that came from burning fossil fuels. They knew about that decades ago, according to a new investigative report over at Inside Climate News. The author of that report, Neela Banerjee, will, will join us shortly. And you may or may not, I don't know, you may or may not have heard something about this report, but it's not getting a lot of coverage, which is kind of amazing in one sense and perfectly understandable in another sense. In any event, Neela Banerjee will be with us momentarily. I will ask her if obscuring the science as Exxon did is akin to what Big Tobacco was ultimately held accountable for, for obscuring the science, for lying about the science, the science that showed that uh, you know cigarette smoking endangered people. Uh, and Big Tobacco went on to pay a big price for that. Will Exxon pay any similar price for what they did in obscuring what they knew? And why is it that this blockbuster report seems to be, be getting so little coverage in the uh, mainstream corporate media? Could it have anything to do with the extraordinary amount of money that Exxon spends on advertising in that very same corporate mainstream media? I'll ask uh, Neil Banerjee all about that in a bit. Here, however, on the broadcast, because we don't have to worry about corporate sponsors, we don't have to worry about whether Exxon is going to keep running their spots with us or not. We can talk about these things. We can talk about them freely and without concern. Uh, because we are supported uh, by donors like you, for example. Uh, one of whom, uh, we'll call him Fred, because that's his name, but I won't give his last name, uh, wrote in to say a uh, subject line from a traveling donor. While traveling in Chicago and visiting my favorite diner, open seven days a week, 24 hours a day, except for Christmas and when the health department shuts it down, I heard your intro song over the FM radio. I perked up and felt my IQ elevating until I didn't hear the customary yup and realized it was the actual song and not your show. Fred goes on to say, very great shows lately, which I have been streaming while on the road. I cracked up at those tea partiers cheering wildly at the speaker, uh, Speaker Boehner's announcement last week that he was quitting. Fred adds, what a bunch of cannibals. Yes, indeed, they are. Uh, thank you for that note, Fred. Uh, and I've got a bunch of other uh, uh, viewer listener mail I've been trying to get to uh, concerning some conspiracy theories. I've been trying to get to for a while uh, several different pieces. We will try to get to them either later. I, boy, now it's probably not going to be today, but uh, hopefully later this week. I keep trying. I will keep trying. You can keep contacting me if you like. You can reach me and Desi Doyen at Bradcast at bradblog.com if you like. Uh, hello, Desi Doyen, hey. speaking of which. Um, some uh, breaking news here before we get to uh, to uh, Neela, and um, uh, actually a lot of breaking news today. Once I again, know. pushing everything back. Man, uh, I would love to have a slow news day. Pretty please. Anyway, uh, Obama and uh, Putin and others are speaking at the U.N. General Assembly today. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, some breaking news here. Shell calls it quits in the Arctic. And NASA has a big announcement concerning Mars for those later two uh, announcements uh, and items. Let's turn to Desi Doyne, our producer and the managing editor of our Green News Report. 
Uh, Desi, let's start with the Shell. Big news uh, in the Arctic. Yeah, huge, huge news in the Arctic. Uh, Shell Oil announced uh, early Monday morning that they were going to be pulling out of the Arctic, quote, for the foreseeable future, Uh, basically because they had drilled a well. They drilled a 6,000-foot deep well, an exploratory well off the northwest Alaska coast, about 80 miles off the coast. They dug in there. They did find oil and gas, but they said it was in insufficient quantities to justify the expense of the adventure. So and, they're pulling out. And uh, that would be to justify the at least $7 billion they've spent over the past seven years uh, working towards drilling in the otherwise pristine Arctic. Royal Dutch Shell just received the approval from the Obama administration just, just six weeks ago to start. Uh, and now they have uh, come up dry. Sadly, so to speak, yes, and and this is, I think, a huge deal because of the fact that you know oil has dropped about fifty percent over the last couple of years from its highs in two thousand eight. So it is no longer an economically viable project to keep sinking all of that money in there. So so very sad. Uh, yes, yeah. Sorry about that, Shell. Um, so that's actually uh, good news, and this comes after a summer of, of fighting about it. Uh, activists, Kai activists up in Seattle trying to keep the uh, tankers from, uh, or I should say the drilling rigs, from getting up to the Arctic at all. Uh, and now, apparently, for now at least, it's all for naught. That's some good news. And speaking of good news, NASA had a big announcement about Mars. Yes, a huge, huge deal. They have found what they call is evidence of liquid water on Mars. Um, bef- you know, we knew that there was some sort of water available still on Mars, but it's a matter of where it would be found and what form it would be. And the, you know, what they were looking at were places on the planet where there was evidence of. It looked like flowing water, but they couldn't figure out how it happened. Now they've done uh, a spectral analysis, basically using the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and they have found that the types of salts that are available around the planet on Mars called perchlorates, they're a specific kind of salt, they actually help to fix and stabilize water at its liquid stage, which is extremely important to be able to bring humans to Mars. And we knew we knew there was ice, uh, yes. frozen water ice. Uh, on, the, uh, on the poles, but now uh, the idea that there's actually liquid water that is actually flowing at various times in various places is big news. John Grunsfeld the associate administrator over at uh, at NASA explains why this is so important. Well, I think all of the scientific discoveries that we're making on the surface of Mars that are giving us a much better view that Mars has resources that are useful to future travelers. Uh, when you have water, you know, what's water? Hydrogen and oxygen. That's what we make rocket fuel out of. Uh, perchlorates. Uh, the space shuttle, the solid rocket booters are, boosters are aluminum perchlorate. In principle, you could make solid rocket fuel. Um, but the water really is crucial because we need water to drink, oxygen to breathe. We have carbon dioxide, also oxygen. So there are plenty of resources. I think we will send humans in the near future to Mars. There'll be scientists looking for signs of life uh, and also to be able to live on the surface. And the resources are there. Very cool, very cool news out of uh, out of NASA today, and uh, we may need it. We may need to get to uh, to Mars pretty soon. The way things are going here on uh, on planet Earth. <laughs> Uh, Speaking of which, President Obama spoke at the U.N. General Assembly on Monday morning, as did Russian President Vladimir Putin and Iran President Hassan Rouhani and others. And in short, 
Uh, what a mess. What a mess we've got. Here are some of Obama's remarks on the devolving mess in Syria, where both Putin and Rouhani are continuing their support of Syrian President Bashar Assad uh, and his fight against what they see as a fight against the Islamic State in that country, but where the U.S. Uh, has also helped train and arm some of the opposition, theoretically the non-ISIS opposition, against Assad. Uh, President Obama is calling for diplomatic solutions there, though he insists that Assad step down before the U.S. is willing to work with the Syrian government. Here are some of President Obama's remarks on that today at the U.N. General Assembly. But while military power is necessary, it is not sufficient to resolve the situation in Syria. Lasting stability can only take hold when the people of Syria forge an agreement to live together peacefully. The United States is prepared to work with any nation, including Russia and Iran, to resolve the conflict. But we must recognize that there cannot be, after so much bloodshed, so much carnage, a return to the pre-war status quo. Let's remember how this started. Assad reacted to peaceful protests by escalating repression and killing that in turn created the environment for the current strife. And so Assad and his allies can't simply pacify the broad majority of a population who've been brutalized by chemical weapons and indiscriminate bombing. Yes, realism dictates that compromise will be required to end the fighting and ultimately stamp out ISIS. But realism also requires a managed transition away from Assad and to a new leader, and an inclusive government that recognizes there must be an end to this chaos so that the Syrian people can begin to rebuild. We know that ISIL, which emerged out of the chaos of Iraq and Syria, depends on perpetual war to survive. But we also know that they gain adherence because of a poisonous ideology. So part of our job, together, is to is to work to reject such extremism that infects too many of our young people. Part of that effort must be a continued rejection by Muslims of those who distort Islam to preach intolerance and promote violence. And it must also involve a rejection by non-Muslims of the ignorance that equates Islam with terror. This work will take time. There are no easy answers to Syria, and there are no simple answers to the changes that are taking place in much of the Middle East and North Africa. But so many families need help right now. They don't have time. And that's why the United States is increasing the number of refugees who we welcome within our borders. That's why we will continue to be the largest donor of assistance to support those refugees. And today we are launching new efforts to ensure that our people and our businesses, our universities and our NGOs can help as well. Because in the faces of suffering families, our nation of immigrants sees ourselves. That was President Obama, to a certain extent, echoing what Pope Francis had to say uh, last week at uh, at the White House about this as a nation of immigrants. 
For his part, uh, Russian President Putin, uh, while uh, Obama had urged a political transition to replace the Syrian president, Putin warned it would be a mistake to abandon the current government there in Syria. He held the U.S. accountable for creating the power vacuum that allowed the rise of the Islamic State across the Middle East. Here are some of uh, Vladimir Putin's remarks at the General Assembly on Monday as, uh, as heard by his translator. It seems, however, that far from learning from others' mistakes, everyone just keeps repeating them. And so the export of revolutions, this time of so-called democratic ones, continues. It will suffice to look at the situation in the Middle East and North Africa, as has been mentioned by my previous speaker, certainly political and social problems in this region have been piling up for a long time. And people there wished for changes naturally. But how did it actually turn out? Rather than bringing about reforms, an aggressive foreign interference has resulted in a brazen destruction of national institutions and the lifestyle itself. Instead of the triumph of democracy and progress, we got violence, poverty, and social disaster. And nobody cares a bit about human rights, including the right to life. I cannot help asking those who have caused this situation, do you realize now what you've done? But I'm afraid no one is going to answer that. Indeed, policies based on self-conceit and belief in one's exceptionality and impunity have never been abandoned. It is now obvious that the power vacuum created in some countries of the Middle East and North Africa led to the emergence of anarchy areas, which immediately started to be filled with extremists and terrorists. In these circumstances, it is hypocritical and irresponsible to make loud declarations about the threat of international terrorism while turning a blind eye to the channels of financing and supporting terrorists, including the proceeds of drug trafficking and illicit trade in oil and arms. Russia has always been consistently fighting against terrorism in all its forms. Today we provide military and technical assistance both to Iraq and Syria and many other countries of the region who are fighting terrorist groups. We think it is an enormous mistake to refuse to cooperate with the Syrian government and its armed forces who are violently fighting terrorism face to face. We should finally acknowledge that no one but President Assad's armed forces and Kurds militia are truly fighting the Islamic State and other terrorist organizations in Syria. Dear colleagues, I must note that such an honest and frank approach of Russia has been recently used as a pretext to accuse it of its growing ambitions, as if those who say it have no ambitions at all. That was the translator, translators for uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday at the U.N. General Assembly. According to The New York Times and other reports, the Russian president, quote, seems to have surprised the Obama administration with an intelligence sharing alliance announced with Iraq, Syria and Iran concerning ISIS and combating their control of parts of Syria and Iraq. The dueling speeches at the U.N. General Assembly were a preview of a, of a private meeting scheduled for late Monday between Obama and Putin. 
The meeting would be the first face-to-face encounter in nearly a year between the two and comes amid escalating Russian military support for the Syrian regime. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with uh, Neela Banerjee momentarily concerning Exxon. Yes, Exxon knew, and they knew for decades. All of that and more straight ahead on your broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. <laughs> Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I I don't know if you have yet seen this blockbuster investigative report from Inside Climate. It it was published a a week or two ago, but frankly, it hasn't gotten the kind of coverage. Well, I was going to say it hasn't gotten the kind of coverage I would have expected, but maybe, maybe we should have expected it. It hasn't gotten the kind of coverage that it deserves. The report is called Exxon. The Road Not Taken. It's a multi-part series that dives into ExxonMobil's extensive scientific research program into man-made global warming as uh, as long ago as the late 1970s. The eight-month investigative uh, report spans a four-decade story. It is based on primary sources, including internal company files dating back to the late 1970s, interviews with former company employees and other evidence, much of which Inside Climate has published for the first time in this report. In short, what the series describes is that Exxon's research scientists confirmed the role of fossil fuels in global warming as far back as 1977 and uh, its potential climate-altering impacts. According to climate, uh, Inside Climate's landmark investigative report, Exxon, they found, also spent millions on research programs to study the impact of increased carbon dioxide levels on the ocean, process called ocean acidification, which poses a serious threat to ocean life. But in the 1980s, after uh, Exxon executives were warned of possible catastrophe from the greenhouse effect, The company abruptly changed direction. They dismantled the company's uh, climate science research program and instead pivoted to casting doubt on the scientific evidence of global warming. As uh, as listeners to this show know and as readers of Bradblog.com know, that effort, at least, was very successful in uh, casting doubt on the scientific evidence of global warming, despite mountains of evidence to the contrary, mountains of evidence that Exxon has known about for decades. From 1989 to 2008, Exxon spent millions of dollars funding groups that deny the scientific evidence of man-made climate change, the very same science that its very own experts confirmed nearly 40 years ago. Joining us now to talk about all of this is Neela Banerjee. She is a senior reporter with the Pulitzer Prize-winning nonprofit investigative website Inside Climate News. 
She was previously a staff reporter covering global energy for L.A. Times and the New York and the New York Times and also served as a Moscow correspondent with the Wall Street Journal. She joins us today from Washington, D.C. Neela Banerjee, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is really a remarkable and important report, frankly, and and on a couple of different levels. So, But first, congratulations to you and the rest of the Inside Climate team on this work. How did you get your hands on these documents detailing what Exxon knew and when they knew it? Well, it's funny because, you know, we're, we're um, a, a website and don't have a print edition, so we're sort of like this 21st century journalism model. But the way we went about getting the documents was just um, shoe leather. It was, you know, uh, calling people, visiting archives, um, just trying to amass as much as, as we could. And so that's, that's basically, you know, the gist of it, just um, hammering away at it over the last several months um, to see what kind of picture we could get. And it mm-hmm. was pretty consistent and pretty clear. And what we found in looking at the documents was, um, was confirmed by um, former Exxon employees from that period who were involved in these projects. I mean, they, we really haven't heard anything uh, to, to sort of contradict what the documents show and and you know and and ultimately the employees themselves confirm I, I was amazed that there was so much information already on the written record about all of this going back so many decades and yet it really hasn't hasn't been reported uh, w- walk us through and and I know this is uh, not easy to do on radio in in a in, you know a few sound bites here but walk us through the general course that Exxon took beginning in the uh, in the 70s and on up through the present day, just in regard to, again, what they knew, when and why they knew it, and why they abruptly changed their public position sometimes, uh, sometime around the mid-80s. And then we'll get into some of the specifics from some of the scientists that you, uh, that you reference. Sure. So um, the evidence that we have shows that Exxon knew, uh, Exxon's top management knew as early as the, as 1977, that there was emerging science on increased CO2 emissions to the atmosphere. That increase was driven by fossil fuel use, and it uh, threatened to warm the planet. And uh, once the planet warmed decades from 1977, that various uh, aspects of human life would feel would experience grave consequences, uh, like agriculture, for example, and, you know, economies and so on. So we, you know, that we have a document we posted with our first story uh, 10 days ago that, that shows um, that, you know, a senior scientist at Exxon made this presentation to the management committee, which is the top level of the company. Uh, about, uh, about a year later, they, Exxon's uh, research and engineering Division, which was in New Jersey, I and mean, you have to remember that time Exxon was based in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, they started looking into doing their own in-house climate research, um, and you know, and and the documents that, that we saw from, that were basically from '77 to 1986, you don't are, are very neutral, and they don't ex- express skepticism that that we've come to associate with Exxon later from the '90s on. They're uh, they're very. Um, uh, sort of frank scientific discussions, and we checked with scientists from that period to find out if some of the questions or, or uncertainties that, that Exxon was probing were the seeds of denial we would see later, or whether in fact it was indicative of, of the discussion of the day. And we found that by and large, Exxon's concerns about uncertainty and so on were very much you know, part of the discussion of the day. So mm-hmm. 
1978, they launch um, an, a, a program to do empirical research where they outfit uh, their biggest and newest super tanker with equipment mm -hmm. to measure carbon dioxide in the ocean and in the atmosphere as the tanker goes on its route from the, from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf. Um, that project goes well. It's, you know, um, and there's, you know, a lot of people uh, who have bought into it, but it is expensive. Um, about, a, about a year uh, or two later, around 1980, Exxon decides that they also want to do climate modeling because a lot of the models then um, that academics were using were primitive, and they wanted to understand through their own modeling what was going to happen with CO2 emissions and temperature rise and so on. And the models, so just to be clear, we're talking about uh, models where they're, they're looking at, uh, at the arc, at the curve uh, in, in CO2 and what effect that may have on sure. the climate, and, uh, which are just, well, I, I don't want to say speculative, but uh, they look into the future based on the data that we have today and based on, I suppose, on the data that... Uh, the super tanker that was outfitted uh, from the Gulf of Mexico to Persian Gulf, based on data that they were able to gain from that study, correct? No, no, actually, actually it was separate. Okay. Um, they, they, they used, you know, what they were using were um, uh, some, you know, they were using uh, projections in-house and otherwise about fossil fuel use mm -hmm. and, um, um, you know, um, mathematical modeling of how the climate in general behaves and so on. So it wasn't very different from what was happening um, outside of Exxon in atmospheric science and so on. The, the, mm -hmm. the two programs were separate. They were, they were, you know, at Exxon Research and Engineering, but they didn't inform one another. Then, but, you know, the, the tanker program was expensive, mm -hmm. and then by 1982, it kept running over budget so much, and the price of oil plummeted, and so they decided to shut down the tanker project. But they continued with the modeling, and they published peer-reviewed research. Their research overall was praised by... Um, uh, by the Department of Energy, by uh, scientists whom they collaborated with, including at NYU and Columbia, and that all continued until 1986. Now, Exxon, from 82 to the end of the 80s, slashed their staff throughout the company, and ultimately the axe fell on Exxon Research and Engineering. From what we can tell, the cuts in staff there were not you know, politically motivated to shut down the climate operation. They just cut the research and engineering staff in half, and some of that fell on the scientists who were doing the, the climate research. Um, so Exxon continued to do climate research from the 80s onward, but it was much narrower, and it wasn't as ambitious as what they were doing in the 70s and 80s. In the 70s and 80s, they really wanted to be seen as a leader in climate research because um, they understood the implications of climate change for their business as a fossil fuel producer. And they thought that the best way to shape whatever policies would, would come, would, would emerge, you know, to, to limit fossil fuel emissions, mm -hmm. they felt that the most constructive way to deal with that was to do really good science and have a seat at the table. I mean, that's obviously different from the approach they started taking in 1989, but um, but that's the approach that that they started to take in the late seventies. And, and before, to, to be clear, before the before they changed their approach and began uh, funding denial, uh, Neela Banerjee, uh, you had said that their science was uh, neutral. I think was the word you used. But I want to be clear: it, it, you you didn't mean to. It, they 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 weren't casting doubt on the science. They were simply covering what it was that they learned. And in 1982, you quote a, uh, a primer on CO2 and climate change 
that was created by the scientists for the Environmental Affairs Office, noting that heading off global warming, quote, would require major reductions in fossil fuel combustion. This is precisely what is denied, frankly, by so many politicians now when they say the science isn't in, man isn't causing it, we don't know, reductions in fossil fuel won't do anything. Exxon quite clearly said the opposite. They said, in fact, quote, unless uh, that happened, reducing uh, fossil fuel combustion, there are some potentially catastrophic events that would occur and that would be irreversible. There was really no doubt in their science, at least uh, in your report that I found, did you come across any questions, any doubt about what they were finding back in the 70s and 80s? I mean, not anything that was outside the norm. I mean, you, you, you have to remember that there, there are people now who are noted climate scientists who may have been in grad school back then, and they, they were also a little bit, you know, hesitant and, and cautious, too, about the emerging science, right? So, so what we found is, you know, we, we tried to understand the context of some of the questions that, they, that Exxon was raising internally from, from what we saw in the documents. And my colleague Lisa Song, you know, checked this out with, uh, with climate scientists at the time. And, and the questions and, and, and scenarios that, that Exxon tossed around were not outside, were, were, did not seem politically motivated or, or, or you know, hugely self-interested. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was mainly, uh, the, the, you know, any kind of caution um, or, uh, or questioning that, that, ha- that was happening among other scientists at the time, too. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, what you just read, I mean, it is, it is startling to read that. I mean, you, know, you, you have to remember there, there are a few things that were happening at the time that, that, that might explain why Exxon and, and, its, and its, um, its staff from the rank and file to the boardroom had a different mindset than Exxon later. One was that, you know, the EPA was founded in, uh, in the early 70s, mm-hmm. and, and environmentalism was not considered, uh, you know, an, uh, you know uh, the scapegoat for all things as, as industry considers it now. I mean, I'm it, not it saying was, no. Well, it wasn't a partisan issue in the same sense. I mean, the EPA was founded by Richard Nixon, of all people. And also, you know, and also there, there was, I mean, it's not, that's not to say that, you know, that Exxon, that they were a bunch of tree huggers, but, but you know, staff I've spoken to, pe- scientists I've spoken to from there, you know, people who are not climate deniers or anything like that, they're like, you know, people we worked with, they said, you know, we're environmentalists, you know, and so um, somebody, you know, I just finished a draft of our fourth uh, installment, and, you know, uh, somebody who was at Exxon Research and Engineering said, you know, for, he said, you know, there were two or three people who accepted global warming for every person who was a denier or who mm-hmm. was wedded to the uncertainty. So it was a different company at that time. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is that Exxon, even before the question of CO2 appeared on the scene and, and started to shape their thinking about, you know, continuing to produce fossil fuels, Exxon was already starting to think of, of potentially becoming a diversified energy company. And that, that was for a couple of reasons. One was that... Um, the um, you know the company had and, and like the rest of the country had survived two Arab oil embargoes in the 1970s and they were you know profoundly shaken up by the um, the volatility of oil supplies and then the other uh, issue that also had to do with the oil supplies was the fact that that uh, geological science at that time seemed to indicate that um, that oil reservoirs 
would dwindle rapidly, and so we need to find alternative energy. So Exxon, apart from its CO2 work, was involved in things like, you know, it developed one of the first um, lithium-ion batteries. One of its scientists, you know, they did a lot of work on solar. They did a lot of work on nuclear, so um, on, on hybrid cars. So Exxon, um, you know, so, so Exxon had this mindset that they're not just wedded to oil and gas. Mm-hmm. That changed as the price of oil fell, and alternative energy became less competitive because it was, it was still expensive then. And then secondly, as, you know, the managers who had signed off on the CO2 research, as they ultimately got older and left the company. By the late 80s, the company had changed, and, um, and people like Lee Raymond had ascended to the highest echelons of the company, and Raymond, you know, if you read Steve Call's book, Private Empire, or, you know, read any interviews with him, he interviewed Lee Raymond about things like climate change, and he said, you know, Raymond has a PhD in, in chemical engineering, smart man, and he just convinced himself that he had the knowledge to understand, you know, atmospheric science, and he thought it was all a hoax. And so... Um, Did so he, he really... Up- this was, and, and we should say that's Exxon Chairman and CEO Lee Raymond. Uh, did he really think that it was a hoax with his you know, we, like, background? Look, I mean, Exxon hasn't answered our questions. You know, Exxon answered a set of our questions, and uh-huh. after that they just stopped answering questions, which is also apparently what they did to Steve Call in his book. But before that, he managed mm-hmm. to interview Lee Raymond for his book, and, and, I, and we've read interviews in which Call said, you know, I don't know if Raymond said that to him or whether he surmised that in, in sort of, you know, following Raymond and getting to know him for the book. But he was certainly, you know, what we, what we have documented in the stories is that Raymond in the 1990s um, derides the very kind of, the very type of climate science and climate modeling that his company was engaged in in the 70s and 80s, including stuff that he was aware of. I mean, Lee Raymond became... He joined the board of directors in 1984. The board of directors um, uh, was all executives at the company. They didn't have any outside uh, board members, I, I, or, I guess, until the 1990s, or had you know, like maybe one or two. Anyway, so he, he's a member of the board of directors, and he is um, he is the point person for Exxon Research and Engineering. So he knew that CO2 research was going on internally mm-hmm. and what they were saying, and um, and it. You know, for whatever reason, he decided not to accept it. Now, those reasons, what happened between 1986 and 89, we don't know why Exxon... changed its mind as an institution about co2 and climate change inside climate uh reports uh speaking with anila Banerjee, uh, inside climate reports that uh, exxon helped to found and lead the global climate coalition an alliance of some of the world's largest companies seeking to halt government efforts to curb fossil fuel emissions. This was, of course, after they already knew of the necessity of doing that. Exxon used the American Petroleum Institute, right-wing think tanks, campaign contributions, and its own lobbying to push a narrative that climate science was just too uncertain to necessitate cuts in fossil fuel emissions. Lee Raymond, uh, that you had mentioned, uh, the uh, chair and CEO of Exxon, said, quote, let's agree that there's a lot we we really don't know about how climate will change in the 21st century and beyond. He said that in a speech before the World Petroleum Congress in Beijing in October 1997. That's a full uh, two decades after uh, Exxon had already been uh, exploring this and had already been saying, uh, yeah, there's a real problem here unless we figure out how to curb fossil fuels. Uh, Neela, let me ask you, I, w- I want to get your response uh, to this quote because I 
I thought that uh, Bob Garfield did a fantastic job, frankly, over on NPR on uh, on their on the media program. He interviewed Richard Kyle, senior media advisor to ExxonMobil, shortly after your story was first published. And Kyle objected strongly to uh, to the findings of your investigation. And uh, Garfield, NPR's Garfield, pushed back against those assertions uh, when he repeatedly said that Exxon had uh, funded uh, uh, research for 30 years uninterrupted. I I would love to get your reaction to the Exxon spokesman here. We've tried to cull it down to a minute or two, but I want to get your thoughts. Let me let me play some of this. Uh, This is the response from uh, Exxon Mobil's uh, media advisor, uh, Richard Kyle, just a few days ago. They have accused us of knowing for certain that climate change was a real problem in the early 1980s and then abandoning our research into that to fund climate denial. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have an uninterrupted, continuous 30-year history of researching this important topic. And the fact of the matter is we have a continuous and uninterrupted commitment to climate change research. Please clarify this for me. Are not funding or did not fund them? We are not funding Okay, so who cares? It's so simple. If you did fund these different disinformation campaigns to muddy the issues on climate science, the question is, why? Why go from a white hat operation that funds very serious research into a damage control operation that seeks to muddy the issues for the public? Why? Once our company was satisfied that not only was it a real and growing an immediate concern that human activity had something to do with it, we became even more committed to doing the kind of research that I've been describing to you. We are committed to science and research around climate change. We have been uninterrupted for 30 years. Uninterrupted, Dick? I'm sorry? Because the whole premise of their story is that it was very much interrupted, a very long detour in which Exxon went from a seeker of scientific evidence to a denier of scientific consensus. That is patently untrue, and it does a great disservice to the scientists and researchers who have been looking into this and other important topics for us without interruption for more than 30 years now. Without interruption, uninterrupted research for 30 years. uh, That was uh, ExxonMobil spokesman Richard Kyle repeating that over and over again. Uh, Neela Banerjee, your response to Exxon's response. Um. What Richard said isn't different from what he wrote to us and what they've also had on their website. It's, it's their talking point. Um, there are a few things that, that I would correct and, and a few things that I would, I would ask. Uh, the first thing is we never said that they abandoned their, um, their, their climate research. We said they curtailed it, which is true. I mean, we know that they continued research, but and I, as I just said, that you know, it was just in a much more circumscribed fashion. Mm-hmm. And it was less ambitious. So that's the first thing. But, you know, what, what, he, what basically he's doing is he's saying that we were never deniers, that, uh, that we, uh, you know, he, he in, in written questions from us to Exxon, um, you know, asking about the change in, in, in Exxon's position, especially exemplified by Lee Raymond's comments in, this, in, in the uh, 90s, you know, Exxon just refused to engage on that. They just kept, hark- you know, hearkening back to, they said, you know, this, everything we've said and done is within the parameters of sound science. Now, who determines that? Is it Exxon saying it's within the parameters of sound science? Because as the science grew more certain in, certain in the 90s, you know, Exxon continued to hammer away at the uncertainty. 
and uh, and and kept you know uh, ch- sort of cherry picking quotes from scientists to say you know that um, that there was um, too much that was unclear to warrant uh, enormous action on cutting back fossil fuels and changing our economies. So basically, Exxon is in a, is as as you know Bob Garfield did when he was asking whether they funded in the past or they fund now mm-hmm. denier activities. You know, Exxon is, is denying that they were ever climate deniers. And, and, um, and they, um, you know, once we started to, to, to ask them much more specific questions about activities and so on, they got uh, very angry with us and they refused to answer any more questions. And they're, they're sticking to their talking points yes. and that's it. Uh, yeah, I, and I know what that's like uh, dealing with companies like that. Although, I, I, to be fair... Yeah, at least to to my ears when I was listening to that uh, to uh, Richard Kyle on NPR, it sounded like he was being very, very careful, very dodgy to say we are not funding them now. And I don't know if they're funding denialist groups now or if they've stopped that. But he he, he seemed to stop short of saying, well, we we never uh, funded them. Right, was, absolutely. Yeah. And only only after only after Garfield pinned him down yeah. on that. And and then you know the other thing too is that. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, only only after I mean, only after Garfield pinned him down on that. Mm-hmm. And 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 in some ways, it's sort of like you know, what, what's the point in funding it now? I mean, they've done enormous damage to the discourse um, over twenty or twenty five years. If you you know, if you start the clock ticking from eighty nine or ninety, um, and and um, you know, they, they, because what what you do is it's not so much it's not just public opinion. It's that Exxon, the Koch brothers, and others funded an entire infrastructure that manufactured doubt and misinformation mm-hmm. about climate. And then they and their political allies could stand up and say, look, look at this reputable think tank that's produced this report saying that, in fact, there isn't a consensus on climate change. And so, you know, so what you do is you create, um, uh, you, you create organizations that, that, that um, that you launder your misinformation through, right? right. Like so, so they they say it, you know, and then you can quote it and 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 look uh, as if you're being reasonable and 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 as if they're a reputable organizations. Well, yeah, and and in another sense, uh, their work here is done. They've done the damage. There's enough people out there who are either spouting their nonsense or are confused enough about it. That they don't even need to fund that effort no, anymore. They don't. But, but and, and you know and, yeah. and you know and, and and their their scientists continue to do research. And I've spoken to people who work with their scientists, and they you know they say that you know their, their scientists do good work. Again, it's it's quite narrow. But um, but you know the um, Rex Tillerson, their their chairman, the gentleman who succeeded Lee Raymond as chairman and CEO, was asked earlier. First of all, you know he he grudgingly accepts that climate change is occurring. Uh, Exxon will not answer questions about whether they accept that it's being driven by fossil fuels. We asked Exxon that directly. They will not address that. Mm. But, um, but uh, Tillerson thinks of climate change as an engineering problem, that somehow humans will find a way to adapt to a changing climate. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's also a position that, that the Koch brothers have taken. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing was that in, you know, he was asked at... Um, at his shareholder meeting this year, whether Exxon would consider investing more money into uh, renewables, and he said, you know, we don't lose money on purpose, and he got a big laugh at his annual shareholder meeting. Mm. But which is, and so it's, it, mm. it continues to be this this derisive attitude towards um, towards a uh, reducing 
the world's consumption of fossil fuels. And, um, and again, it, it, it stands in stark contrast to what they were doing 40 years ago. Uh, it, well, it, it does. And, uh, you know, on, on the notion of, uh, you know, their work here being done as far as the denial industry and the, they don't need to fund that anymore, it's almost self-perpetuating at this point. But, uh, you know, something else occurs to me here. They spend, ExxonMobil now spends millions and millions of dollars on advertising, on advertising on news programs, political programming. Uh, and to that end, uh, Neela Banerjee, what has, I want to ask you about the coverage of this story to date. I noticed you were on a few days ago, you were on uh, uh, Amy Goodman's uh, Democracy Now!, uh, also on uh, Pacifica Radio. But I've been kind of surprised by the lack of coverage of this story that I think, frankly, is a blockbuster. And places like MSNBC, uh, folks like Chris Hayes over there who might otherwise cover landmark reports on global warming seem to be staying away from this one. This is not just a story about global warming. This is not even just a story about fossil fuels causing it. It is very specifically about Exxon and Exxon's action in all of this. ExxonMobil pays a lot of money to outlets like NBC and CNN and so forth to advertise. Uh, is it your sense that they might be, uh, well, that they are shying away from this story or that that, uh, that advertising money might have anything to do with a lack of coverage uh, on, on this rather explosive report from the, uh, from the corporate outlets? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I have no insight in, into that. Um, I know that we're working with a, um, with a good uh, PR company that, that, that has been pitching our stories mm -hmm. to the NewsHour and to MSNBC and others. And, um, you know, and, they, um, and so far, I mean, NPR has, has covered us, including, mm -hmm. you know, uh, on the media and on Point and others. But... Uh, uh, and we also got a big shout-out from The New Yorker, which I think has helped uh, drive a lot of traffic to our website. We, um, uh, you know, Newsweek and a few others have done, done some things. But um, why, you know, MSNBC and, and CNN and others haven't done anything, The News Hour, I, I don't know. It's, it's you know, the, I, I, I can't speculate on that. What I can tell you about, say, for example, why AP or The New York Times and The Washington Post haven't covered it uh, because, you know, I used to work at the New York Times, and I know something of the mentality there. No, none that, of them, a, a, neither AP nor New York Times nor Washington Post, have even picked up on this report with even a, a stub coverage? No, no, they haven't. And I, and wow. I, and I, think, I think it's because, you know, it's an exclusive, and we have the documents, and they don't want to be second. I mean, when I worked at the New York Times, I felt the same way, and we weren't going to give this to people on an embargoed basis. Um so, yeah. But they hey, usually um, follow up something like this. Uh, you know, we're talking, it, it's been almost two weeks since this came out, that, you know, when you've got independently verifiable documentation, as you do, that they can look at, uh, you know, at AP, at the very least, you know, would come out with a, a short report on this. It's, well, okay, you're, you're more generous than I am, I, I think, when it comes to that, because I, I think it's amazing that they haven't, none of those uh, three outlets have picked this up. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, based on my experience in the past, I think that's why. I, I can't help but compare, and I've seen others make this comparison as well, I can't help but compare the what Exxon did here to what the tobacco industry did uh, back with, you know, to sort of cover up their own science 
uh, about the dangers of, of tobacco. They even employed, Big Tobacco did, em- employed uh, many of the same folks that Exxon is now using to sort of, uh, uh, you know, to deny the science here and mislead the public. Uh, do, you, do you think from your investigation, I realize you're not an attorney, but is there a, a similar legal case to be made here? Uh, you know, Big Tobacco was eventually found culpable in, in, in uh, lying about science, misleading the public. Is there a similar legal case to be made here as you look at it and as we now know what happened and what the industry did to cover up its own science? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'll leave that to the lawyers to determine. Um, I, I do think that, that, it's, that it's not quite accurate to say that what Exxon did was a cover-up. I mean, they never denied that they did this science. They, uh, they didn't suppress it. In fact, they wanted to publicize it. I mean, all throughout the, the 70s and 80s, they were, um, you know, they were, they, were, they were participating in symposia and publishing and, and, you know, and sponsoring events and so on. So... Um, so, you know, the, the parallel isn't quite right there. But whether there's fodder here for lawsuits going forward, either from private lawyers or from government ones, you know, I, I don't know. And, and we still have more uh, stories to, that will come out with more documents. So uh, I'm sure they're taking a look. I look forward to those uh, new stories to come out in the future. Neela Banerjee, uh, part of the uh, team, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, team over at Inside Climate News. You can find uh, their report on Exxon, the road not taken at InsideClimate.org. Fascinating and enlightening report, and I I look forward to more of it uh, in the future. Neela Banerjee, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. And it's InsideClimateNews.org, just to give it the right plug. Ah. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to fire my producer, Desi Doyen. Uh, <laughs> do not do uh, that. Uh, <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks th- a lot. Thank you, Neela. Okay, I won't fire you, Desi. Okay, thanks. But we do have to take a break. We are running long. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with the uh, the unfired Desi Doyen for our last <laughs> few minutes. Uh, Des, over the break, uh, you, you had a thought on that interview, or at least Neela's response uh, to who was and wasn't covering this. And uh, you said, oh, that was nice of her to defend the New York Times. Yeah, I think it was nice of her to <laughs> defend her former employer. But, you know, as far as whether or not the New York Times didn't devote any coverage to this huge, I think, huge story, yeah. eh, you know, that it's, oh, because it's exclusive and they don't want to report on other people's reporting. I, I don't buy that. You don't buy it. I do not I, buy it. No, you know what? I don't I don't either. New York Times, Washington Post, AP, I mean, at least one of them will generally run a you know, a stub article uh, covering what has been said when you've got a, a story of this magnitude. Anyway, um, yeah, check out that story at InsideClimateNews.org. You will hear it here because we, uh, well, we don't have the same considerations that the New York Times does, I guess, because we rely on you. And my thanks, by the way, to those who have stopped by at bradblog.com slash donate 
to make sure we can continue doing that. All right, very quickly here, I had hoped to get to some presidential polling news. I've been trying to get to this for days, but too much news is breaking. So I will just leave uh, leave us with this. Christian Amanpour on CNN over the weekend had an interview with Iran uh, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani and asked him what he thought about all of the Republican candidates recently in, in the uh, presidential debate, talking about tearing up the the uh, agreement for the nuclear peace deal with Iran and U.S. and Russia and Germany and France and China, uh, and generally asked him what he thought about our um, about these about these Republicans who are running for president. You must have been watching from Iran the Republican presidential campaign, and you must have been seeing some of the debates in which many of the Republican candidates have said that if they become president, they will rip up the deal. First of all, what is spoken of here in the United States of America, sometimes when I would have time, some of it was broadcast live and I would watch it, some of it was uh, quite laughable. It was very strange, uh, the things that they spoke of. Some of them wouldn't even know where Tehran was in relation to Iran. Some of them didn't know where Iran was geographically. Uh, not distinguishing that one is the capital of the other. So what they spoke of was quite far away from the truth. So the people of Iran were looking at it as a form of entertainment, if you will, and found it laughable. <laughs> people of the United States are also looking at it as a form of entertainment and find it quite laughable. But hopefully the Republican uh, presidential candidates realize, no, they don't fear you in Iran. They are laughing at you. Along with us, we're laughing at you, too. My thanks today to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and, of course, to my guest, Neela Banerjee from InsideClimateNews.org. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime via bradblog.com or subscribe for free to every single episode over at iTunes. Leave us a good review while you're there. Makes it a little easier for everyone else to find us. Find us and follow us also on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Oh, yeah, our email address, bradcast at bradblog.com. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.